Yeah, man, if you, well, let me ask you before we dive in, how many of you are surviving back to school? Parents, anyone? Are we, we are, okay, why don't we, let's pull the crowd. How many parents, you're the parents, you like getting the kids out of the house? Make some noise. Parents, yes. All right, how many parents wish you had a couple more days of summer for the kiddos? Anyone? Yeah, no, no, take them, take them all. All righty, well, uh, once again, Tyler Moore, pastor here at Cornerstone Menifee. We are diving into a sermon series like you saw called Habits. Now, here's the problem with a title like Habits. We have all been classically conditioned by culture to expect a, a sermon series about little little tips, little tricks, and little things you can do, five steps here, two ways over there, to just dramatically transform your life, because we as a culture are pretty uh, pretty preoccupied with this idea of self-help, right? It seems like there's always another self-help bestseller hitting the stores, but the problem is, is we as a culture have become so focused on the self part of self-help that we are completely dismantling our values for deep and meaningful connections. We have become so focused on the self part of self-help that we are dismantling our deep-seated values for the family unit. We have become so focused on the self part of self-help as a society that we are completely dismantling our values for connection, community, and deep, meaningful relationships. So, as we continue to dive in, as we are seeing uh, society continue to progress, we are seeing from this focus on self and the dismantling of deep, meaningful values, uh, the deep connections that we used to have as a family, the connections we used to have with our neighbors in a community. We are now seeing a generation and a population here in the West that is the most isolated and alone, that is the most depressed and anxious. And we are now living in what sociologists are calling the era of loneliness. And so what are we going to do? How can we restitch the fabric of our lives? How can we restitch the fabric of our family? How can we restitch the fabric of our marriage? How can we restitch the fabric of our society? Well, luckily enough, this is church, where 99% of every redundant question, the answer is is Jesus, right? Yes. Well, you're going to ask your kids, what did you learn at church today? What are they going to tell you? Jesus. It's just the answer to every question here in church. So we're going to take a look at the way and the, some of the practices, some of the habits, if you want to call it, of Jesus, and we are going to apply it to our lives today. So take a look at the left-hand side of your notes as we take a look at some background and a little context. Letter A, our series is all about looking at a few of Jesus's practices and habits and how they can restitch the fabric of our lives. Letter B, we've been looking at the ordinary concept of hospitality and how Jesus used this practice to bring radical transformation. We're going to be talking all about radically ordinary hospitality. Let us see today, we'll see Jesus re-engineer the function of our homes. Take a look at this, Luke 10, starting in verse 25, a story that most of us are familiar with. On one occasion, an expert in the law, circle, expert in the law, stood up to test Jesus. Oh, foolish error, my friend. 
friend. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asked him, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So the man answered, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love the neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And Jesus replies, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to find out what box do I have to check each week to go to heaven, Lord? What? Who is my neighbor? The man asked Jesus. And so Jesus is going to tell him a story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This was actually a very common scene in ancient Israel. The man was headed down a path which got the nickname, the way of blood. Sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? Doesn't seem like a nice road to go down at night. And so in our story, verse 31, a priest, circle that, a priest, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Whew, the Jewish audience would get a breath of fresh air. Okay, the hero of our story enters. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This would be something that Jesus is going to draw your attention to later. Okay, maybe that wasn't our main character, verse 32. So to a Levite, circle Levite. This was another form of a religious leader in the Jewish community. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. Okay, not the main character of our story, not the hero. And then Jesus is going to change it up, verse 33. But a Samaritan, <gasps> the crowd would gasp. You see, the ancient Jews and the Samaritans had hundreds of years of racial tension and bigotry and hatred towards one another. And so when Jesus says the word Samaritan, the Jews already know that Jesus is going to make this guy the hero of the story. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to went in and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Then Jesus asked the man a question in response to his question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, notice, he can't even say the Samaritan's name. He can't even say the word Samaritan. He just says the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, before we finish up in verse 38, uh, chances are you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan as a kid or somewhere in society. You've heard this story. Chances are if you grew up in church like I did, you had a really nice lady with a really big updo. She just had really tall hair for some reason and a felt board. And she would use that felt board and all of these little characters to dramatize the story. And she would show the robbers beating up that poor little guy. And then she would show this Good Samaritan riding in and saving the day. And then she would wrap up the scriptures with some sort of like moral to the story, like Jesus loves you and Jesus loves other people too. So be kind to everyone 
as good boys and girls, and she would have left you with some moralistic, deistic approach to God, like, be good, be kind. That's the point of this story. Be a good Samaritan. And then you went on your way, had Chick-fil-A, and called it good. But take a look at what Jesus is doing here. When he said the word Samaritan, this story was not a, a, a be good to others story. This story offended every single person that Jesus told it to. This story made every single person in the audience mad, and they left, and Jesus just went on his way. And now Luke is going to do something important in the very next verse, in verse 38. Luke is going to figure out, how can I make people who just read this even more mad? Because how can I take a group of, of a male-dominated society who hates Samaritans, how can I drive this point home even further? So in verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a priest where a Levite, where a patriarchal leader of that tribe of Israel invited Jesus into his home? No, a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Luke is trying to draw your attention to a theme of hospitality here that we are gonna highlight today. Who were the protagonists in our stories? Who were the protagonists? It was the Samaritan and now Martha. Martha, two everyday ordinary people, not the spiritual elite. Who were the heroes, the protagonists, the Samaritan and Martha? How did they display, uh, uh, how did they resolve the conflict of the story? How did they meet a need? Was it through great strength? No, through hospitality. So take a look at the right-hand side of your notes with me. Our practice and habit for this series, sharing meals, sharing meals with our neighbors, with our family, and with our God. It's a way of saying being radically ordinary in hospitality, sharing meals with people. Notice letter A, Jesus is unraveling this idea of spiritual elitism and uses the marginalized of the day to be the protagonist, to be the unlikely hero and proponents for the kingdom of God and the presence of God. Letter B, notice the protagonist didn't use words or miracles or signs from heaven as much as they just used ordinary hospitality to their neighbors. Maybe the moral of the story isn't to love the neighbors thousands of miles away. Do you see, maybe Jesus was actually referring to your literal neighbor that you pass by on the road. They used hospitality. This is important, first subpoint because Jesus is highlighting the interplay between how do we love God and how do we love others? What does that look like? How do those two things go hand in hand? How can you and I, everyday ordinary people actually love God and love people. Well, the stories, the characters here, they used hospitality as a way that Jesus highlights. And uh, from here, we can see that it's very important for you to realize uh, what the Bible, what Luke is trying to convey. Notice, Jesus tells a story of a man who goes on the road. And on that road, he experiences a great need. He gets beat up, right? And then a random, everyday, ordinary person takes care of him, inverse hospitality, right? They don't take him home, but they take him somewhere else and show him hospitality. So there's a road, there's a need, and then there's hospitality. And in the very next line, what does Luke do? 
Jesus goes on the road. Jesus experiences a need. He needs a place to stay. And then the hero brings hospitality to resolve the need. Notice what God is doing in our verses today. Uh, Luke drives our point home. There is something powerful you need to recognize. uh, Luke is tying together these three elements. Love your neighbor. Love the person who you pass by. Love the people next to you. And how do you do it? Love them through hospitality. Luke is driving a point home for you and I today because your second sub point from this ordinary hospitality that Jesus modeled, extended by everyday people, Christianity didn't spread from church to church in the first couple centuries. Christianity spread from home to home and it spread like crazy. How could a backwater faction, how could a movement formed by 12 guys and someone claiming to be the son of God, empowered by the spirit of God, how could some backwater region known as Jerusalem that nobody in Rome cared about, how could something started 2,000 years ago actually spread all across the known world at the time, flip the most powerful empire that has ever occupied the face of the planet, controlling 25% of the entire world's population at the height of its power? And how could the way of Jesus flip this empire on its head, create such foundational institutions of human compassion like schools and orphanages and hospitals and hospice care, completely revolutionizing our idea of what it means to be human with such thoughts and ideas such as equality and inalienable rights amongst men endowed by their creator, instituting beliefs such as rights for women and children. How could 12 everyday ordinary people and the son of God completely change human history as we know it through radically ordinary hospitality for it spread from home to home from table to table from one person to another and that torch of revival which was lit by Christ all those years ago is still carried today. And you and I can pick up this torch of love and hospitality and grace, and we could extend it to our neighbors as well. If you believe that God can still move through your life here in Menifee today, can you just say amen? Amen. Amen. So life is a little bit different than it was 2,000 years ago. Would you agree? Life is a little bit different, I guess you can say. And we as Christ followers, we view our homes just a little bit differently than Christ followers did in the first couple centuries. So last week, I had so much fun talking about all of those terrifying statistics about how little we share meals together. Do you guys remember last week when we talked about those terrifying statistics that made it seem like a dystopian future was on its way to just ravish the earth as we know it? Well, I thought, what would be more fun than talking about more fun statistics? Would you guys enjoy that at all? Just a couple more statistics about our houses and our homes. Okay, check this out. I have done some research for you. All of our statistics are from the 
the Census Bureau, and uh, I think they're gonna. I think you're gonna enjoy it, or it's just gonna make you sick. Either way, let's have some fun. So, I want you, and I need you to do me a favor. I need you to turn to your neighbor, and I need you to guess. Guess what the average price was for a home in 1950. Go ahead. Turn to someone around you. What do you think the average price for a home was in 1950? What do you think? Shout out some answers. What? 2012. Okay, you're either going to laugh or you're going to need, you're going to get sick. The average price, including places like the Midwest, we'll forgive the Midwest, the average price for a home in 1950, $7,354. Like I said, it might make you sick, right? Now, today, the average price for a home in America, including places like the Midwest, which, I mean, 50 grand out there, and you'll get a mansion. But don't move. Stay here in Southern California. The average price for a home now today uh, is $236,000, quite a big difference in just 68 years, right? Now, if you factor out the Midwest, it's probably like $2 million for a two-bedroom, right, here in SoCal. At least that's what it feels like, oddly enough. So before you, uh, I know some of you are starting to do the math right now. You're like, what about inflation? I have those numbers for you too. So adjusting for the rate of inflation, the, uh, uh, the inflation adjusted rate, still the average price house in 1950 calculating inflation, $44,000. Still almost a $200,000 jump. Now, before you go and blame the devil for house prices here in Southern California, a lot of things changed since the 50s. Um, one of them is home size home size. The sizes of our homes have changed a little. Maybe some of you can remember this happening throughout your lifetime. Turn to your same neighbor. Actually, pick a different neighbor. Like, why don't you meet someone? It's church. Pick a different neighbor. Guess, talk, find out. What do you think the, the average square foot sized home was in 1950? What do you think? Go ahead. Chat amongst yourselves. What do you, what do you think? Let me hear some numbers. <laughs> Eight hundred. Eight hundred and one. Right? You guys are trying to like one up each other. Okay. The average size home, you guys are actually pretty generous. What did you think people were living in like tents or something in the 1950s? Like, you know, no, no, no. The average size home was a thousand square feet. A thousand square feet. Two bedroom, one bath. Oh, could you imagine sharing a bathroom with grandma and grandpa and your teenagers? Oh, Lord. Some of us have dog houses bigger than 1,000 square feet. Like, Scruffy needs three bedrooms. So the average size home today, according to the U.S. Uh, Census Bureau, is 2,500 square feet. Get this, four-bedroom, three-bath. I'm not sharing a bathroom with my kids. No way. I'll pay the extra 200 grand, right? So... As interesting as this is, family size, as our houses have gotten bigger, our family size has actually gotten smaller. Our family size has gone from 3.37 to 2.5. 
2.5. Yeah, another uh, factor uh, driving home prices today is the mortgage industry. The mortgage industry. In the 1930s, you needed to have an immensely high down payment. Your mortgage term could only be five to 10 years. Could you imagine trying to pay off your house in five years? What would your monthly be? That'd be crazy, right? And uh, you could only borrow 50% of your home. Well, due to things like the Great Depression, World War II, by 1950, we see much more common mortgage uh, uh, rates today. Uh, the 30-year was brought forth, and you could borrow 95% of your home. And then in 2007, we just took the lid off and said, you don't need any cash. Free homes for everyone. That didn't end well, did it? The Great Recession happened. And so we see a couple of factors when it comes to our homes. They're getting bigger. Our houses have gotten larger. Our debt has gotten longer. But you know what happens when you get a bigger house, right? What do you need? More stuff, right? How can we kind of get a gauge? How can we metric? How can we kind of measure out how much stuff we're putting in our homes? Well, in 2017, Amazon's net sales, $178 billion. Billion dollars. All the air just went out of the room. A billion dollars. Amazon offers right now two clicks away. Maybe Amazon's your home screen. Who knows? One click. You have 64.3 million home and kitchen products available to be shipped to your house in two days. 64 million products for your home. Some of you are about to go shopping right after this, right? Now, what happens after we fill our home with stuff and then we need to redo the kitchen or we need a new patio set from Pottery Barn? What do we do with all of our old stuff? Do we throw it away? Do we donate it to, to needy families in like Indonesia or Ethiopia? I don't know, some random country. Do we just give our stuff away and ship it FedEx? What do we do with all of our extra stuff? We store it, don't we? That's what storage is for. I might need this one day. Have you ever said that to your spouse? What if we need this? That's 20 years old and we still haven't needed it then and we don't need it now. The storage industry, you might get sick again. The storage industry, annual revenue, not like grossly, like gross decade, like no, annual, annual, annual revenue, $38 billion dollars. $38 billion. Right now, there is 2.3 billion square feet of rentable storage space in America. Now that we have bigger homes with way better stuff, right? Now that we have bigger homes with way better stuff, you would think that we would spend more time sitting around the dinner table, right? You think we would spend more time with our neighbors barbecuing, right? You would think that we would have and entertain and show hospitality way more often today than we did just 50 years ago, because where are we going to put 12 people on a thousand square feet, right? You think we would entertain more, but the average American still spends almost five hours a day watching watching TV and two hours on their cell phone. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Five hours of TV, two hours of cell phone. We are living in an economy based on greed and consumerism and now isolationism. There is an entire economy that is having us buy bigger and buy better, which isn't evil. And yet 
now that we have the bigger and the better, we're still more lonely and isolated and depressed and anxious than ever before. Is there a way, a practice, a habit that Jesus has modeled and given us that can restitch the fabric of our homes, that could restitch the fabric of our society, that could restitch the fabric of our mental, our emotional, our relational, our, our, our physical well-being? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus? Well, luckily, this is church where 99% of, uh, of questions asked, the answer is Jesus. He does. And we see radically ordinary hospitality. So let's continue to dive in. Take a look at the left-hand side of your, no, or I'm sorry, the right-hand side. Hospitality, the power of innovation and how it applies to us. Number one, we are invited, we are invited to be protagonists in Christ. We are invited to be the unlikely hero. We are invited to be the everyday person that comes along and makes a difference. In Luke 10.33, it wasn't the religious elite. It wasn't the people who had their acts together on the outside. It wasn't people who had the perfect Pinterest home, all 2,500 square feet of it. It was everyday ordinary people like you and me in these verses. They were invited to be the heroes. We see Jesus flip the script of the religious litmus and he uses people like you and us. Jesus tears the veil. He takes the top off and he invites people like you and me to make a difference, to be the change, to experience healing, to experience hope, to experience life change, and to be the hero of the story. Letter A, the Bible tells us that we're not just invited into God's story, we're invited to be conquerors and co-heirs as well. Romans 8, 17, Paul says that we are co-heirs in Christ. And in verse 37, he says that we are more than conquerors in the name of Jesus. Notice, you do not have to be a bystander living day to day in your home as life unfolds helplessly out of your hands. You do not have to be a bystander in your home as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a spouse, as somebody who's taking care of your parents. You do not have to be a bystander as life unfolds out of your hands and out of control and come what may. Jesus is inviting you to be the hero of the story, to take back control of your life through the power of Jesus Christ who will enable you to overcome and get out of debt to overcome the brokenness, to overcome the hurt, to overcome the, 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 the marital dysfunction, to overcome the, the parental anxiety, to overcome all that you have seen. You can, in the name of Jesus, be the husband that you dream of being. You can, in the name of Jesus, be the father that you dream of being. You can, in the name of Jesus, be the wife that you dream of being. You can, in the name of Jesus, be the spouse and the, 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 the person that you dream of becoming. Jesus takes the top off. He removes the lid and he invites people every day, ordinary like you and me, to be the hero in the story. It's not based on how good you are. It's based on how good he is. And Jesus is inviting you into the story, not to be in your home as a bystander, as 
your family and as life rushes chaotically out of control, uh, uh, just apart from you, you are invited to be the hero in your home, to be the father that they need you to be, to be the mother that they, need, that they need you to be, to be the spouse, to be the caregiver of your parents. You are invited, empowered, encouraged, and enabled by the spirit of God inside of you to be the hero that you dream of being, to be the man and woman, the man or woman that you dream of being. God is inviting you into his story to not just let life in your home slip out of your grasp, but to be the person that you have dreamed of being. Number two on your notes. We are invited not just to be protagonists in Christ, but we're invited to be proponents of Christ. We see there in our verses in Luke 10.37, we see that Jesus is using everyday people like us. The man asks, what, who do, who's my neighbor? How does loving others, how does that unfold? And we see Jesus use everyday people like us, like the Samaritan and like the Martha, like, like an everyday ordinary person. Jesus uses us. We're the ones who demonstrate the love of God. We're the ones who demonstrate radically ordinary hospitality. We're the ones who bind the wounds of the hurt by, by, by life. We are the ones who bind the wounds of those who have been hurt from a previous marriage. We are the ones who bind the wounds of a neighbor whose family life is falling apart. We're the ones who bind the wounds of the hurting world around us. Jesus uses us to be proponents to expand his kingdom. But letter A, notice, opportunity often comes in the form of inconvenience. Opportunity often comes in the form of inconvenience. Hebrews 6.10 tells us that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you helped others. Notice, we show God love by helping others. Yeah, isn't it funny that the way we show God love, the way we receive love from God, when we read, when we pray, when we're praying and it's quiet and our kids aren't awake, when we're drinking our cup of coffee and, and we're reading the word and the, getting the kids ready for school hasn't started, isn't it funny that when we love God and experience God's love, it feels nice? Yeah, isn't it funny that when we help others, it feels like a pain in the butt? Come on, be real with me. This is church. Yet God said we showed him love by helping others. Opportunity is often in the form of inconvenience. That's why I stand up here on stage and I invite you to be a part of ministry teams here in Menifee. I invite you to be a part of setup and teardown, setting up pipe and drape, uh, to, to work in our children's ministry or hospitality. Not because I'm out to get you, not because I want to inconvenience you, not because I want to inconvenience your schedule, but because I want to give you an opportunity for your soul. Opportunity is often in the form of inconvenience. And so as Cornerstone Menifee, I need you to get excited with me before I get all rowdy on point number three. We go all big. We encourage the snot out of you and then you get out of here. I need you to get rowdy a little bit early for me. Can you handle that? Okay. Okay, good. We are coming up Actually, we have just passed. We're two days past. 11 months as a church plan. Come on. 
Make some noise. Oh, hey, Brett, there you are. Thanks, buddy. Play some keys. Let's really get this thing going. And as we continue to push forward as a church, I'm going to continue to invite you to be a part of ministry here at Cornerstone as we push past year number one and as we thrive, as we expand, as we grow, as we see more marriages saved, as we see more families healed, as we see more children come and know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as we see more people commit their life to Christ, as we baptize more on September 9th, as we start more life groups where people can find a community of love and support and encouragement through the ups and downs of life, I am inviting you as as, as inconvenient as two weekends a month may be, I'm inviting you with this opportunity to experience God move. I am going to be candid. I am going to be honest. I did not, when I was a young man, ever jump in ministry uh, all throughout my years, but when the time came when somebody invited me, when I took that step and when I inconvenienced two Sundays a month, I experienced the opportunity in Christ Jesus like never before. I drew closer. My faith grew stronger. What can God do through you this year? What can God do through you here in Menifee? I'll be upfront with you. We are looking for four more guys to jump in and be a part of our setup and teardown team that'll make ministry happen. Opportunity is often in the form of inconvenience. If God is putting that on your heart, write that down. Maybe you can't do setup. Maybe you can just do teardown. Write it down on the bottom of your connection card. Drop it on our Next Steps booth over there. We're looking for four to five more people who can smile and pass out notes at the front door, who can smile and wave to people as they walk in. We're looking for four more people on hospitality. Can God use you here in Menifee to just say hi, to set up pipe and drape? The church is not built on the gifts of a few. I cannot preach pipe and drape up, although I'm still here at 7.30 willing to do it. My microphone cannot tell children about the love of God and roll Tonka trucks with them. I cannot from this stage hold our little ones and give a parent one hour of rest out of the craziness of the week, but the church is not built on the gifts of the few. The church is built on the little sacrifices of the many, and he is calling you today. So many of life's best moments and greatest opportunities are on the other side of inconvenience. It's the paradoxical ways of the kingdom. As you take time out of your busy day to listen to a co-worker's woe is me, as you encourage them in the name of Jesus, somehow you leave encouraged. As you take time to listen to your neighbor, even though you hear them fight all the time, but to actually listen to their story and how tough things can be, as you pray for them and lift them up in the name of God, somehow you're the one who leaves more uplifted. It's the paradoxical ways of the kingdom. Do you think that the Samaritan regretted of seeing God work through him? Do you think Mary and Martha, who saw Jesus raise their brother back from the dead, ever regretted a single moment of hosting the Son of God in their home? Opportunity is often in the form of inconvenience. As we are talking 
thinking about inviting people into our home, I know the culture tells you it's easier to view our home as a castle, to view our home as a place of comfort, to view our home as a place of retreat, to view our home as a place where I am supreme. But what if, what if we let go of our Western thought of my home as a castle? Because castles are meant to keep people out. And castles are meant to kill people who try to come in. What if we let go of this thought? And what if instead of viewing our home as I am Lord, what if we viewed our home as he is Lord? What if we stopped viewing our home as my castle for my comfort and coziness? And what if we viewed our home as a place, as an outpost for God's presence where yes, having a new neighbor that just moved in, even though it's the third neighbor in 10 years, that is gonna be an inconvenience but what can God do through you in that life of a neighbor? What can God do through you as you open up your apartment, as you open up your, your kitchen table and have someone over? What can God do through you this year? Finally, point number three, as we wrap up, you're invited not just to be the protagonist in Christ, not just to be proponents of Christ, but you are invited to share the presence of Christ. Letter A, our lives and our homes are meant to be outposts for God's presence, not just castles for our coziness. And finally, this week's practice and habit or challenge. Take a look at this, the bottom part of your notes. Can you actually name all of your neighbors? Can you name your immediate neighbors to your left, to your right, across, and diagonal? Can you name your neighbors? 70% of America can't. Research weird church people like me have tried to study hospitality and the best is they could find 70% of people can't name all those one, two, three, four, five people, five families, people, they don't know them. Can you name those neighbors? Where do they work? What grade are their kids in? How can you pray for them? Who's God putting on your heart to demonstrate hospitality? Maybe it's not a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. I, uh, me and my wife just moved into our new place as I told you about a couple weeks ago. And we actually don't have a neighbor for like four acres or something crazy like that. There's just a lot of dirt. The dirt is my neighbor. I don't know what to do. And so neighbors, coworkers, who can God put on your heart? The very first night we moved into our place, we didn't plan it this way, that would be foolish. But the very first night, because things got pushed back, the very first night that we moved all of our junk into our home, we had all of our team leads here in Menifee over. So amongst all of the chaos of moving, our team lead night was that same night in our home. And instead of canceling, because that would have been way more easier and way better, instead of canceling, I knew that sometimes opportunity comes in the form of inconvenience. And I had our team leads over. And it was the best way to start life in our new house through radically ordinary hospitality. What if we were to not view our homes like the rest of culture? Bigger homes, longer debt, more stuff, more storage, castle of comfort where we keep people out and we hurt anyone who tries to come into our life. What if through the name of Jesus Christ and the strength he gives us, maybe not every neighbor in a two block radius, but maybe the neighbors in a similar season of life as you, who have kids around your kid's age, who are, who, 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 who are in the same season of life as you're in. Can you 
Who's God putting on your heart? The church was not built 2,000 years ago from church to church, from temple to temple. The church was built for the last 2,000 years from neighbor to neighbor, from home to home, from person to person. Jesus is inviting you into the game. He's empowering you through his spirit to expand his love and his kindness and his kingdom. Your kindness can help lead people to Christ. And people will experience the presence of God through you. Pray with me.